0: 15th Canto of Inferno, the fourth great sinner we encounter on our walk down with the pilgrim in Virgil. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough, and we are about to enter one of the most commented on, most discussed And most opaque cantos of all of Inferno, let me remind you where we are before we get here and move into the 15th. We're going to be at lines one through 24 in this episode of the podcast. We're in the seventh circle of hell. We're amongst the violent. We've come down a scree-filled slope. We've passed the Minotaur. We've seen those violent toward others and toward the property of others standing in a river of blood or sunk in it or up to their waists or their ankles or their heads down Depending on how bad of a sinner they were, we passed on into the eerie and strange and horrible wood of the suicides, those who do violence against themselves as well as those who did violence to their own property. We saw there the third great sinner of hell, Pierre de la Vigne, one of my favorite characters in all of Inferno. We then came out to the third rung of the violent, those who have been violent toward and against God. We saw the blasphemous and Capaneus stretched out on a burning flame-filled plane where the flames are coming down like raindrops or like hail these little tongues of fire Ooh, we're going to talk about that a lot more and now we are passing on to the next set of those violent against god we'll want to talk much more about who these are first let's read the passage lines 1 through 24 of canto 15 of inferno now, one of the rock-hard borders gave us passage and the steam from the stream offered a shelter so that it made the water and embankments safe from the fire. As the Flemings, between Wissant and Bruges, fearing the tide that can flood them out, make a barrier so that they can escape from the sea, and the same as the Paduans do along the Brenta to guard their towns and castles before the Carentana feels the heat... Along these same lines, although not so tall or grandiose, these embankments were built by the master builder, whoever he could be. At this point, we were so far away from the wood that I would not have been able to see where it is, even if I'd made myself turn to see it. That's when we came upon a squad of spirits, who came along the embankment, and each one of them gave us the once-over, as men do in the evening, gazing at each other under a new moon. They furrowed their brows, as an old tailor does at the eye of a needle, as I was being scrutinized by this band... I was recognized by one of them who grabbed a hold of my hymn and cried, What a marvel! And that's where we're going to stop as our pilgrim is grabbed at the hymn by one of the sinners who are running along, coming along beside them on the fiery plain. This is a passage that breaks itself into four neat little bits, hmm, two three-line little bits, and then two longer nine line bits. So let's start and work through it. But before we do that, let me tell you about my assumptions. Who is being punished in the 15th and the 16th Cantos of Inferno? My answer is the homosexuals. Now this pains me being a gay man. I don't want the gay men to be punished in hell, of course, but hey, you got to take the poem as you find it. And so I accept that who we're about to encounter are the homosexuals. Why are they being punished here amongst the violent against God? We're going to have to remember back to Canto 11 to know that. And the reason I say that is because back in Canto 11, we were told that here is punished the sin of Sodom. Now, there is all kinds of modern quibbling on this, and many people disagree. But for now, I'm going to tell you that my assumption is that these are the homosexuals. I'm holding an interpretive tradition that goes back to the earliest days of comedy. But there are many people, particularly in the late 19th and in the 20th and in the 21st centuries, particularly in the late 20th and now the 21st century, who doubt this designation and think that what is punished here is different from homosexuality. I'm going to save that discussion until we were all the way done with the 15th canto but i just want you to know up front this is my assumption okay let's move to the passage itself First three lines. Now, one of the rock hard borders gave us passage. Remember, when they come out onto this plain, there's a stream coming out of the wood, and it's got rocky embankments, and there's a stream flowing out. It's phlegathon, it's that river of blood back there that people were standing in when they were boiling alive. It's probably that water, although it's not described as bloody here or red in any way. Virgil had told us all about it, and then Virgil launched into that giant explanation of the waters of hell. I'm always a little curious that this water is not defined as red, but Virgil certainly seems to tell us that this is Phlegathon draining out from those violent against their neighbors, through the wood, I should say, and on down to this burning plain. And they're walking on the embankment, rock-hard borders. The word is kind of margins, and there is a literary quality about this we're going to want to talk about later. Margins didn't hold the same meaning for Dante that it holds for us now, and yet the passage is going to turn on some notions of what you do in the borders, or the mar- what we would now say the margins of texts. It's important to know that they're standing out in the border, because what's gonna happen here is a giant glossing of other passages that are just gonna all lead us down to Dante asking for his passage to be glossed. And where do you gloss? You gloss passages in the margin so that we start out with a word. That doesn't mean literary margin for Dante the way it might mean for us. But nonetheless, that we start out on a border shouldn't surprise us. So there's one of the rock art borders gave us passage. They're walking down this little border alongside the stream. The stream and the steam from the stream stream offered a shelter. So the assumption is that the fire falls into this stream and it creates a mist or a cloud or a vapor that keeps other fire from falling. I told you that in previous episodes of this podcast that I'm unsatisfied with this explanation. I don't know whether it's a failure of Dante or whether it's actually not the true explanation because if the steam or the vapor puts out the fire falling so that those are safe who walk along the edge here, then it just seems all very odd to me because there can't be any more. There can't be any more flames if they're being put out above. And then if they're all put out, how does any steam arise? I can't decide exactly how this works, but certainly that's the most common explanation of the passage, so that it made the water and embankment safe from the fire. See, there's that vapor, and it's going to make them safe. All right, let me tell you two things about this little three-line bit, the first tercet. One, the first rhyming lines of Canto 15, lines 1, 3, and we haven't got to it yet, 5, in the Florentine, the first three rhyming lines all have 12 syllables each. Remember Dante's Poetics. It's basically 11-syllable lines. That we start out Canto 15 with three 12-syllable lines, extra syllables. It gives us a little bit of a pause. And I should tell you, in the Florentine, there's also a little bit of odd rhyming that goes on on the penultimate, the second from the end syllable. There's a little bit of weird rhyming, I don't know what to say, jerkiness that goes on right there in these 12-syllable lines, an extra syllable from the usual Dantean lines. I'm going to ask you this question again and again during Canto 15, but is that thematic? Is the excess, the extra syllable thematic to what's going on in the text? And it might be. It might be thematic because, as I told you, this entire canto is going to turn on glossing and interpreting text, and a gloss is excess to the text itself. So we're starting off with excess. And you should know that in Dante's day, one of the criticisms of homosexuality is that it is excess, that is not to be graphic but that sexual activity is used for no procreative good and so it's just excess for its own sake putting that in a bit too modern of a phraseology but that's kind of part of the criticism of homosexuality that it involves useless excess or the useless to use the biblical words spilling of seed is that then thematic, that these 12-syllable lines occur here? It might be. It might be setting us up. Notice, too, there's a second thing here. Notice that for the first time, our pilgrim and Virgil are not walking the circle. In the past, we've seen them kind of walk along a circle and descend, walk along a circle and descend. It kind of came up to a pinnacle with the lustful and Francesca. But then we start this kind of notion that you kind of walk in the wood of the suicides. You walk along the violent toward others. You walk in this circle, Almost always but not always almost always to the left except you turned right when Farinata was there, but almost always to the left, and then you go down. Notice here you can't do that. And this the third ring of the seventh circle of hell, you can't walk along it. It's it's structural of course, because these are burning sands with fire falling on them, so our pilgrim in Virgil can't walk out there, especially our pilgrim, our pilgrim would be really burned up. If the damned get burned up by this fire, what would a guy in his body? What would happen to him? You have have to ask yourself, is there a thematic functionality that they can't walk to the left and around the circle, but they walk straight down? If, in fact, it is thematic, is Dante the poet screaming at us to say, I am not a homosexual. Don't consider me one don't think me one. Remember in the past, the reason I say this, in the past, we have seen Dante himself engage in some of the very sins that are punished. He seems to have an excess of passion around Francesca and passes out. He seems to get furious at Filippo Argenti uh, in the in the circle of the wrathful. Dante sometimes gets very close to the sin that's being punished. He certainly gets close to Farinata's political sins. Here, Is Dante the Poet screaming at us? I may have gotten close to some of the other sins and even been slightly guilty of them or been lured by them, but I can't be lured here. And how do I know? How do you know that? Because I'm not walking along the circle. I'm just walking straight down through it. Possibly. What's intended and what's not, it depends on how you interpret it. And since I interpret this as the homosexuals, I'm going to find all kinds of little knots in it that I wouldn't find if I didn't start off with that assumption. Moving on to the next part of the passage. We come to a double simile, as the Flemings between Wissant and Bruges, fearing the tide that could flood them out, make a barrier so that they can escape from the sea. And as the Paduans do along the Brenta, to guard their towns and castles before the Carentana feels the heat. Along these same lines, though not so tall or sound grandiose, these embankments were built. I'm going to stop one line early before the end of this passage. A double simile, to the Bits, the Flemings, and they're building their dikes as they do in the lowlands of northwestern Europe, the continent, there they build those dikes to keep the, the, the sea out, and then the Paduans, they build similar structures along the Brenta, a river, to keep their towns and castles safe before the Carantana feels the heat, is the passage. This is a little bit of a debated passage, where the Carantana is and what Dante, the poet, is actually talking about is heavily debated in the commentary. I'm going to blip over it. It seems to me a debate that is below the depths of where this podcast exists. I'm just going to tell you that I'm going to leave it as Dante leaves it, Carantana, and tell you it's an alpine region prone to flooding. Because when the snow melts in the spring and the heat comes, the rivers all flood. So the Paduans have to build dikes or dams or embankments to keep their towns safe. Just know that I'm fudging a little bit and there's a great deal of commentary on what exactly the Carantana is and if, in fact, the word is corrupted in the text. I'm just accepting it as Dante's word and passing on. But I'm saying that we got two similes, those Flemings. And you should know that in the Florentine, the word used for Flemings... Puns on the word for flaming, and I realize that flaming and homosexuality is a very modern conception. It could be flaming, not so much homosexuality, but because the fire is falling from the sky, this whole place is on fire in the burning sands. There is a punning that goes on there, but there again are two similes, one about the Flemings and one about the Paduans. That's a lot of excess, right? Is that intentional? Just like those 12-syllable lines, is it intentional to have two similes that start us out to get here? And you'll notice there's got to be some irony running under here because we're on the burning sands. We're rocking along an embankment from a little stream, with a little stream at the bottom of it, and there are these burning sands, and we have Two similes about the Flemings and the Patchwoods, and they're both about the world underwater. So while we're standing on the burning burning plane or looking out at it, we're having similes about too much water, which would put out the flames. Is that ironic? Is it funny? Or is there a way in which there's a reversal constantly going on in the text? And this reversal, flames to water, may prove thematic because of who we're going to meet. And one more thing in this passage before we pass on to the next three lines. So we have, you know, the the way the Flemings built their dikes between Wissant and Bruges, the way the Paduans do to keep from the spring floods from overwhelming their town. Along these same lines, although not so tall or grandiose, these embankments were built by the master builder, whoever he could be. For me, this is possibly the strangest line in all of Inferno. The master builder, whoever he could be, doesn't the poet know? These words seem to be out of the poet, these grand similes, not the pilgrim's consciousness, but the poet's consciousness as he recasts the landscape into metaphor. Doesn't he know? Who built these embankments on the sides of this little stream? God is it that who built hell is it that who built the universe didn't wasn't this place hell constructed didn't we know that from the gate of hell this line for me is always one of the strangest lines in all of inferno whoever he could be what what the most catholic of all poets the most christian of all poets the guy who thinks he's a better catholic than the pope he doesn't know who built these embankments I got news for him. Almost everybody knows who built these (laughs) embankments in the rhetoric and theology of the poem God did. What is that doing there? Why is that there? Is he believing somehow that hell is constructed by somebody else beside God? That's real bald heresy. Or is there something else going on here? Is there a way in which you can see the products of work without actually finally being able to touch the craftsman who made it? I can see the natural world. I can posit its that God exists behind it, but I can't actually touch the creator of the natural world. And this could be important to the passage as a whole. If you know who we're about to meet, you can hear what I'm setting up, that you could have a work in which you have it in your hands, you're using it, walking along these embankments, and yet the person or being, or in this case, Godhead, who made it still eludes your final comprehension, still eludes your final touch. It could be incredibly important for what's about to happen in Canto 15. Let's move on. At this point, we were so far away from the wood, that I would not have been able to see where it is, even if I had made myself turn to see it. This is an interesting little bit. Two, maybe three things about this little three-line bit. First of all, this is an echo of Canto One of Inferno. Remember, Dante wakes up in that dark wood. He tries to crawl out of it. When he finally gets out of it, he's so undone that like a swimmer crossing the Bosporus, as it were, he looks back And looks at where he came from and looking back toward that wood in Canto 1, it's got a little of that resonance here. We were so far from the wood that I could not have been able to see where it is, even if I had made myself turn to see it. There he wants to look back. Here he doesn't want to look back. Or does he? Two, this is one of the few times in Inferno when there's actually some sort of horizon line. We get this notion that you could turn around and they've walked so far down this dike, you can no longer see that wood. Remember, they're descending, so it would be higher than they are, so those trees would be disappearing more quickly than they would on a flat surface. So you could no longer see it back behind you, but you still have this notion of a horizon line, which rarely occurs in Inferno. It incur- it occurs in that first canto of looking back at the wood and the mountain in front of them that he tries to climb and then falls back because of the three beasts. We have this notion there of horizon. This is one of the only other times we have it. And what it seems to me it does is it gives this entire canto and this entire geography a claustrophobic feel because we're feeling the horizon behind us. Expansive, sure, but always this notion that there's a line where it ends, and that seems to give it a more cage-like or claustrophobic, that's a word Dante would never use, of course, or closed-in feeling to it. And why, my third point is Dante so compelled or drawn to looking back? Why all this discussion? Oh, we're so far away that I, you know, even if I wanted to turn myself and it's, there, there's this this way in the Florentine that, that I tried to translate it, if I'd made myself turn, this willful shifting about, I still couldn't even see it. But behind it, in a kind of modern psychology there's this desire for that wood. Remember I told you in previous episodes that there may be ways in which the besetting sin of Inferno, why the pilgrim finds himself in the dark wood in canto One, may have been suicide or suicidal thoughts. And there's echoes of that in the canto with Pierre de la Vigne. And this may be another echo because we're echoing back to canto one, we're echoing back to the wood, we're Echoing back to the attempt to see it, but this time I don't want to. Uh, uh, Listen, I couldn't even make myself look at that wood, even if I wanted to. Well, saying that makes, you know, you think, "Mm, what is it with you? And that wood back there, there may be a pull to that wood for the pilgrim that is revealing something about the pilgrim's backstory. The pilgrim is super cagey about his backstory. The poet is super cagey about the pilgrim's backstory. But perhaps this is one of the hints, at least It could be. Let's move on to the end of the passage. That's when we came upon a squad of spirits, a band, a squad, a troop, uh, uh, kind of, it's a little bit perhaps of a military word, a band of spirits, a troop of spirits, a squad of spirits who came along the embankment and each one of them gave us the once over as men do in the evening, gazing at each other under a new moon. They furrowed their brow as an old tailor brows as an old tailor does at the eye of a needle again. Two similes as men look at each other under the new moon in the evening, and as an old tailor tries to thread a needle, they're peering very intensely. A lot of modern critics see this as well, to use a modern word, as an instance of cruising. They As I take these sinners as the homosexuals and there's a kind of cruising going on here they're looking at each other in the evening as men used to do before homosexuality became legal and so there's this kind of cruising metaphor I I have to tell you I find that a little stretched. Instead, what I find is there's a kind of unnaturalness here that's going on, and that may be the better reference for homosexuality. Notice that these men, and they are men, who come up, they replace that line of the wood that is now lost to the horizon behind them. So you have the damned replacing the wood, or that is, the line of trees. So they form a kind of now Unnatural horizon in the landscape. The the trees disappear and are replaced by this squad of spirits standing there. They would seem unnatural in this landscape, full of natural detail like the wood. That strikes me as much more the point. But there is still this strange double simile of as men look at each other in the evening, gazing at each other under a new moon. And many many a critic see that Luna, that moon there as a signal of effeminacy, which is, of course, a signal of homosexuality, especially in medieval lit. The moon is associated with women, with women's cycles, with femininity itself. The moon is most often given the gender of she. And so here are these men looking at each other under a new moon. They're furrowing their brows. Now, see, this is not so cruising as an old tailor does at the eye of a needle. They're trying to figure something out. But again, Double simile. We already had one, Fleming's Paduan's. Now we have a second, men gazing, Taylor needle. So just if I had to be like an SAT test, notice what happens here. We have water is to fire as sight is to what? Remember, that double simile up there is all about a world underwater. It's about the Flemings trying to haul back the sea. It's about the Paduans trying to stop the spring floods. And we had, and yet we're in this burning landscape. Okay. So the simile is about water. The similes were about holding back water in a world of fire. This is about seeing or sight as to what, what is the other side of that comparison, and how we answer that will largely determine on uh, determine the way we answer what happens in this passage. Water is to fire as sight is to what? Just think about that as we go through this passage itself. It's so here's the double simile: the men look at each other, the eye of the tailor, and then it says, "As I was being scrutinized by this band, I was recognized," and I think. Given a medieval notion of homosexuality, it is very important to see all these passive verbs. I was being scrutinized, I was recognized. They're passive verbs and there's a reason for that because of course homosexuality is seen as an abrogation of patriarchy, of the male as the action figure. Rather the male is suddenly turned into a passive figure. It's a very common uh, homophobic trope, and I think it's important to see it working here. I was being scrutinized by this band, and you should know that the word in the Tuscan is familia, by this family. It gives them a close-knit feel, as if they're connected, related, but they're all men. See, for me, again, it's hard to miss why this is about homosexuality, but again... Many a modern critic doesn't think so anymore, but we'll get to that. I was being scrutinized by this band. I was recognized by one of them who grabbed a hold of my hymn and cried, what a marvel. This is important. Let's think two things about this. One, Virgil and Dante are up on the top of this embankment. The stream is below them. So clearly it's like a dike or like a, a, a border or like a, a levee that they're walking along beside the stream. And these men are down below them. They're at about foot height of our pilgrim and Virgil. Their heads are about where, where Virgil and Dante's feet would be. And so one of them grabs the hem of Dante's garment. Notice from a previous podcast episode, Dante the pilgrim must be clothed if he's got a hem on. So... <laughs> And we can't answer that. Dante's certainly not naked. So grabs the hymn and says, what a marvel. But there's a second piece of little weirdness here from this guy standing down there and our pilgrim standing up on the levee. This whole scene, you know who grabs whose hem? In the New Testament, women grab the hem of Christ's garment. If that is echoing, Behind this, then our pilgrim is putting himself in the place of Jesus as this figure who is under a moon, which may indicate effeminacy, grabs the hem of his garment. The irony here is getting thick. It's getting almost impenetrable. If you think about where we just came through in this passage, we passed through so much irony already so many jarring strange moments so many moments in which there seems to be a little joke or a wink a world underwater on a plane on fire so many winks going on whoever that may be that master builder you can see that the poet is gaining rhetorical power by the line and potentially the pilgrim by the step that's why you want to come back the next episode of walking with Dante because who grabbed his him we're about to find out who thinks the pilgrim is a marvel what a word to use a marvel uh we're about to find out and who it is is explosive dynamite stuff so subscribe to this podcast come back for the next episode I can't wait until we meet him because the conversation he and Dante are going to have is an unbelievable testament to poetic skill rhetoric and irony all balled up into some of the most opaque lines that we have encountered yet in inferno subscribe drop to the bottom of that apple podcast and writer review thanks for sticking with me in this journey with dante i'm mark scarborough and this is the podcast walking with dante